Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 641. There is no end to creativity. You can always do more. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I'll never worry again about having a dead battery with my NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in my glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that'll jumpstart a dead battery in my car, boat, truck, or RV. The Genius Boost features built-in spark-proof technology and reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart any of my vehicles. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are built from solid copper for maximum conductivity. There's a built-in ultrabite dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS and emergency strobe. I use my Genius Boost Jump Starter to charge my phone, tablet, and laptop while I'm on the road or if the power goes out in my home. The unit itself is easily rechargeable in my vehicle. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, the battery car source since 1914. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Dick Aruzin. Dick, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? All ready to go. All right. Great to have you here. Dick Aruzin was an automobile designer and director of design for General Motors of Europe and Chevrolet when he retired. He owns the only Corvette-powered De Tomaso Mangusta, built at the factory. During his career, Dick worked at over 140 car design programs, including the Opel Max, which was the inspiration for the Swatch car. During his career, he also created car design, exhibits, automotive shows, design awards for NAIAS, furniture, Christmas parade floats, graphics for the America's Cup, and the Woodward Dream Cruise in Detroit. You are a busy guy. Since retiring, he's written a book about De Tomaso Mangusta that's titled Bella Mangusta, penned magazine articles, and worked in education as a mentor for design students. So, Dick, I've told our listeners just a tiny bit about your long career in automotive design. Would you take a brief moment and share a little bit more about your career and your passion for automobiles? Well, looking back, it was really a terrific uh, career, and, and I really realized uh, later how I had been moved around the design building into different studios and the result was I was prepared for uh, management positions later that would be quite challenging. I always had a great time working. I never worried about the politics and uh, worked on a lot of terrific programs uh, starting when I first started at GM Design was called Styling in uh, 1961. And I was assigned to Oldsmobile Studio. We worked on the, uh, I worked on the six, 1966 Tornado, the first one. Wow. And then I went to a wonderful place. Uh, I did a lot in Oldsmobile looking back on it, but I was a little bit unhappy. I didn't feel I had done enough. And so I was moved to another studio called Preliminary Design that had a terrific chief designer called Bernie Smith. The great thing about Preliminary Design was they did a lot of scale models, not so many full size, but we were kind of a think tank for the building. 
So I got to do many, many scale models where I did the whole car, front, side, rear, everything. And uh, we had management reviews, and it was a great learning process. From there, I went to a studio called Overseas Studio, which was connected with the various GM companies around the world, uh, Holden in Australia, GM do Brazil, Opal and Vauxhall. At that time, that's that's what they were. And uh, we monitored uh, what they were doing. We, we sent suggestions over when they asked for it. Bill Mitchell was a great believer in sharing people. So a lot of those people came over to work for six months. And we uh, they would start in our studio. So I had great fun meeting all those people, doing things, going to races and whatever with them. Anyway, that that's kind of later it went on and uh, I became a director of design for Chevrolet and uh, GM Europe. Wow. Well, those were amazing times. And um, I'll tell you, when the Tornado came out, my mom was in love with that car. She wanted one of those so bad. Uh, one of the earliest cars we had when I was a little kid was an Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser. Uh, we had a couple of those. And uh, my sister and I loved those skylights in the back that they back there. We thought those were just for us in the back. We even had our own visors, which was pretty cool. You've had such a wonderful, illustrious career. And we're going to talk about your career. We're going to talk about your book. But first, as we continue on your journey... I always like to start with a success quote. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in your life, some kind of mantra. It's a nice way to get those inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So, Dick, take the wheel. Well, there's a favorite thing I have, and that has to do with creativity. So I guess my saying would be, there is no end to creativity. You can always do more. And if you think about that, it's really the truth. We generally stop creating when the time runs out. And that's the big challenge for designers always in it, is how best to use the time most efficiently. Critically, a design program, if you start off with a, a great solution, uh, a great theme at the beginning, then you have lots of time to do the design work and the execution and really make it beautiful. If you don't find that at the beginning, if you only find it at the end, then you have a real crash and a real problem, and that often happens. Yeah, you know, I've had a lot of designers uh, as guests here on Cars, yeah, and I've heard a lot of different stories from the challenges they face working in automotive design because it's definitely not an isolated adventure. You're working with teams, you're trying to please the guys in the suits of the other offices and, and develop something for the consumer. So that concept that design never ends is absolutely true, but there is that deadline that comes up that you have to be finished with. So maybe share briefly, how do you deal with that impending deadline so that you can get all of your creativity out but still produce something in a timely manner? Well, it, it can be easy or it can be difficult. <laughs> yeah, I've had it at times be very easy and I've had it at times be very difficult. When I was chief designer for Cadillac, we... I was responsible for the design of the 1992 Seville and El Dorado. And Cadillac had the small cars before that. So there was a huge uh, anticipation for the cars. And we didn't really understand that in the studio. Both cars ended up with us finding the theme with two weeks to go Wow! in the program. And uh, it made us late. And one of the things that happened was amazing. The, the Seville was two weeks late we had six the engineers had six weeks to do their the surface development work 
GM had contracted that work out to a supplier, and when we started working with them, we realized immediately they didn't know what they were doing. They were aircraft people starting the first time doing this. So we had to bring it back in-house, and there was no time because all our people were committed with all programs. So the management in our uh, what was called special vehicle engineering, the management in that engineering group took their vacation time and did the car during their vacation. They didn't get vacation time that year. And that's how committed everyone was in the building to getting Cadillac, the kind of design that, that everyone felt they really should have. Wow. What a cool inside story. That's incredible. Nice team. Great team to work with. Well, let's go back in time a little bit. Would you share a story with us that instigated your passion for cars? Is there a pivotal moment when you look back in your life when you realize that you were a car guy? Well, I grew up in a small town uh, outside of Detroit. I was born in Detroit, but my dad bought a farm out in a little town. And uh, so in high school, I mean, everybody was interested in cars. It was the it was the 50s, the late 50s, and um, a lot of things were happening in the industry. And one day uh, with some friends, uh, we were at the drugstore, and I saw a magazine, Road and Track, and on the cover was a couple of Italian cars, a Seata was one of them, and it was kind of a classic uh, two-passenger roadster with a little chrome frame around the windshield, and uh, that really was interesting to me. Previously to that, my car experience was Model A Ford. I, I learned to drive in a Model A Ford. My dad had his boss's Buick. Later, he got his boss's wife's Cadillac from my mother, and I drove a tractor and uh, a few <laughs> other things. So I, I had this kind of broad experience of wheeled vehicles. Shortly thereafter, when I needed a car, I bought an MGTD. Cool. And I remember driving that car right after I got it, and it dawned on me how precise it was, the steering, the brakes. I was really having the feeling that I was driving it. I was really driving it. it everything wasn't remote. Uh, the seat was tight. You were you were close to the controls. You shifted it. You steered it. The braking, everything was very sensitive. And uh, I think that's probably the first time I really realized that cars could be many different ways for many different people. Very cool. I have a friend up here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, David, who has a Seata that he restored that is just an absolutely beautiful car. It's been on the lawn at Pebble Beach. And my father, when I was very young in the early 60s, had an MGTC. And I still remember riding around in that car with him driving. It was right-hand drive, so that made it kind of weird and interesting for us. It's a little kid sitting on the driver's side with uh, with no steering wheel, although he had an extra wheel that he would give me, and I'd sit there and pretend like I was driving and freak people out <laughs> when we would go by. But very cool beginnings. That's nice. Well, Dick, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the many roads you've driven down. And what I say crawl under the hood, get our hands a little dirty, and ask you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced along the way in your career. Of course, the most important part of these kinds of situations has to do with what did they teach you? What did you learn, and how did you move forward from that? So take us to that painful time, kind of walk us through that, and then uh, tell us how it helped you further your career and and your life. Well, I think as a designer, the greatest challenge I had was uh, when we got, when I received the assignment to head Cadillac 
to bring forward these the Seville and the El Dorado. Unbeknownst to me, my, my boss, Dave Holtz, told me this a couple of weeks later when the, he assigned me to the studio. He said, oh, you have to get an El Dorado. And then, then I found out, well, it's an El Dorado and it's Seville. And then I found out, well, then right after that, there's a DeVille on the Fleetwood and an SPS and on and on and on. And I had been in Chevrolet studio for eight years and really knew how to do that. I knew the people at Chevrolet well and they were very happy. And it, it had become pretty easy, but now everything was new. And when a designer gets re- reassigned, you have to, you then have to convince everybody you're working with that, you know, you can do the job and they should help to the to the max. So that was really challenging. And um, but we got both designs, and they both turned out to be very good. One of the interesting things was that Cadillac had done the Elante with Pin and Farina. And they told us that they were going to have Pinafrina do an El Dorado also. So we're doing an El Dorado. They're doing an El Dorado. We're doing a Seville also at the same time. We're doing two cars at once, which is was unheard of. And um, Pinafrina came a couple times, and finally their model was finished. We had a model in various product clinics, and the Pinafrina car was chosen. And we... In the studio, my assistant, Dennis Little, we didn't feel that the car they had was the right car. We didn't feel our car was the right car either. We hadn't achieved what our vision was. Anyway, the one thing their car had that ours did not, and it was the thing that triggered all the clinics, was a body side molding, a rub strip molding. And Cadillac owners were adamant that they wanted their cars perfect, never damaged, never touched by anyone. And we, uh, we were not allowed by our management to put a body side molding on our car. So every time we showed the cars, because our management wanted to get away from that, wanted to get past that, and they felt if Cadillac could do it, that would lead everyone else. So one day I was working, so it was over. Pininfrino was going to do the car. We had their fiberglass model. We were going to start making a clay model that would emulate that car and release it. And uh, I was working in the auditorium setting up the show and my boss Chuck Jordan came over and he always, always called everybody by their last name and he came over and it was quiet there it was kind of dark I was putting stuff on a board and he said Dick I have to talk to you I thought somebody had died I mean he was really gray and I said what's what's the matter and because uh, he never called me by my first name rarely did he call me by my first name and he said um you know, the Eldorado went to another clinic, Pinafrina car, and uh, we'd been asked to paint it a different color. And they were having a color clinic, and they were showing the Eldorado, the Tornado, and the Riviera. And the Eldorado bombed. Pinafrina's car bombed. Now, the time is all gone by about two months. And um, he said, uh, I said, oh, I said, wow, I said, that's great. And he said, it means you have to do another car. I said, that's great. I said, Chuck, we've done every possible cliche. If we do another car, we're going to do something new. He was really surprised. He he credited us then with doing all this work. And I didn't even realize he had noticed. I mean, he he never said anything about how much work people are doing. You just have to do it. And so um, within two weeks, uh, we created another car. It was we took it to we took it outside we invited Cadillac it was 
right after Thanksgiving. They knew we were doing another car for them. And I never liked when they came in, some of them would come in early and look at everything. And then they'd call their bosses and tell them what we had without understanding what we were showing. I went in early and we covered it up with a cover. And the night before I'd been shopping for Christmas, so I bought all this wrapping paper. So we put a big bow on it. And when Catalan, when the guys came in that normally looked at everything, they were very upset that they couldn't see it. And uh, so finally, John Grittenberger, the general manager, came in, and he was not real happy, in a happy mood, probably because the Pininfarina had, car had bombed, and he knew, for him, that would have been the end. It would have been a Pininfarina design. They could have, they could have advertised that that's what it was, et cetera. So we were the kind of the black sheep. And so I he said, what's that? And I said, what? That's the, the new Eldorado we've done. I said, you want to see it now or later? He said, um, well, let's see it now. So uh, my guys are all ready. They took the bows off. They took the cover off. And, and there was just dead silence. Of all the cars we had shown over the previous year and a half, probably 15 or 20, none of them met everyone's expectations. It didn't meet our expectations, but we knew we could get there with that proposal. Anyway, there was dead silence. All you heard was feet shuffling, and everybody was impressed. So we took the car outside um, later in the morning. Uh, we made a few adjustments to it. When you get a car outside, you're looking at it at a distance. You change lines around a little bit. You're not looking for the theme. You're looking for refinement. You refine a few things. We brought it back in. It was made up of a lot of cardboard and paper, a cardboard paper on a full-size model. It wasn't a, a clay model all dolled up for show. It took a lot of, you know, imagination between what we were showing and the reality. So anyway, we got the go-ahead from Cadillac, and uh, within two weeks, we sent it to our shop, and it was cast, and that became uh, the production car. Wow. You know, what comes to mind is uh, one of my past guests who was a designer was Chris Bangle, who was the first first American hired by BMW. And the challenges he spoke about going into BMW and being an American in a German car company and being the guy in charge of design was a huge, huge challenge. So that story came to mind when you, you shared going into this new area and having to not convince, but work with a whole new group of people and say, hey, OK, you know, I'm the new guy here. Let's see what we can do and what we can create. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it must have been incredible. Well, Dick, let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd like to have you share what I call a career aha moment. One of those fun times when the, the headlights come on and kind of illuminate your way for a new direction. Maybe you could share one of those career aha moments with us. Well, it had to be. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on Cadillac, but because it was such a unique and unusual experience, it had to be the the night we showed the car. Uh, a year before it came out in Detroit at the North American International Auto Show. What year was this? It would have been 1991. Okay. And um, the car was a 92. It would come out the following. It was January of 91 that we showed it. It would come out the following October as a 92 model. Cadillac wanted to send our fiberglass model for the uh, the Seville uh, which was a beautiful model. It was it was painted a wine pearl 
and it had a, a gray beige interior with uh, this Zebrano wood. It was really beautiful. And uh, they were going to put it in L.A. and launch it there because California was a big market. Then they were going to bring it home to Detroit and show it in Detroit. So this a month before the Detroit show or the L.A. show, they were told by uh, L.A., no, you're not going to show a car here and take it out. If you show it here, you leave it. But they had to be there. So they had to decide, Detroit or L.A.? And um, they came up with the idea. There was a running prototype that was very rough. And it was being driven day and night at the proving ground. So they took the prototype and we put it in various shops and we created a show car in one month. Wow. And that car was then taken, uh, was going out to L.A. And on the way, it was going to stop in Phoenix in the mountains. Uh, where there is a particular rock that's about 600 feet high, and the sun comes up behind it. And so photographers have constant light for about two and a half hours. And uh, they were going to go there, stop, and then continue on with the car to Los Angeles. In the meantime, the other car is being prepared in Detroit for the Detroit show. So we get out there, and uh, they asked me to go with go and meet the photographer and give the photographer some direction. And they had a couple of young PR guys that are really neat guys. So they were going to meet me there. So I fly out there, get a car. I drive to the, to this area in the mountains and there's a truck, there's the car they're shooting. And uh, that was the first time I saw it really outside in the environment. Before that, it was only uh, on the patio. Wow. Uh, I guess I, did I mention earlier that we were told that unless this program was successful, the corporation was going to close Cadillac down. Whoa. Yeah, I think I missed that. Yes, that's a big comment. That was That's what I was told by my boss two weeks after I went in the studio because the corporation had been funding Cadillac for over four years. They came out with the little cars and they were a disaster. So anyway, there we are shooting it. The first time I see the car in the mountains, uh, uh, in those mountains, it's beautiful sunlight and... Um, they were going to make videos as well. They had a van, and they did shot videos out the back of the van. So I saw the car driving and uh, a lot, and it was really interesting. Wow. I called uh, my boss up and told him, I said, you know, Chuck, it looks sensational. So it, that was a big challenge of his entire career was Cadillac, and that was 18 months after he took the job. So anyway, from there, I flew to L.A., where they had the car in a dealer council meeting. They had uh, about 30 dealers from all over the West, and they were uh, going to see the car. And so we ended up showing it to them in a secure patio at the hotel outside. It was a beautiful sunny day. And I heard so many uh, heart-wrenching stories from these dealers who had invested all their money in Cadillac to get a dealership, then all their savings and getting through the four years. And now here's the new car and they were going to see it. And many of them just wanted a blank sheet of paper. They could put gold lettering on and stuff. You know, they had learned how to do that. That's how they survived. It was a spectacular experience. And then from there, the car went into the show. And uh, I had, you know, it was on television that night, a woman that was <laughs> walked in Friday night before the show started was wearing a dress the same color as the car. She was the auto writer, and she came in, she was on TV, so I had the tie on that the color came from, 
and uh, we talked, and uh, I understood. I never saw it, but she, I understood she, she did a great interview uh, on television. I flew back to Detroit, and Detroit has a Friday night party before the show opens, a big charity event. I think it's the biggest charity event in the world. So the car was there, the one we had for Detroit, and uh, you couldn't get near it the entire night. There were people around the car, 40, 50 feet thick, uh, uh, completely around the turntable. I had v, vice presidents of um, BMW wanted to talk to me about it, all kinds of things. They had uh, Edsel Ford got on the stand and looked at it. Uh, it was a, just a sensational evening. Wow. Spectacular. So I would say that has to be one of the highlights. Uh, other than that, probably having uh, Giorgetto Gigiaro compliment me at the Frankfurt show on the Opel Max as being the best car in the show. Yeah, wow. Would you say that was your proudest career moment? No, my proudest career moment moment would have been from two or three people that I worked with who made, me, made compliments to me along the way through my career, I would say, uh-huh. about the work we were, that we did and how we did it. I would yeah. say that was probably. Very nice, very nice. Well, let's go back in time again and have a little fun. What was your first really special car? And maybe you could share a memory you have of that vehicle. Well, I, it was the MG. Uh, that was a time when Chevrolet had come out with uh, a small block engine and everything turned upside down. Suddenly, the lowest cost car was the fastest. And I lived in the country outside Detroit. We, had, we, we knew people that worked at Chevrolet in the engine dynamometer rooms. Everybody was drag racing. There were all kinds of things going on. And uh, I had the MG for a couple of years. And my friend had a Thunderbird that had a lot of traction. And uh, they took the engine out and, and uh, they put a Chevrolet in and he lost all his traction. And so there were a lot of cars being converted. You'd see cars driving around at night that, you know, Henry J. with a Cadillac, uh, a Buick with a Chevrolet in it. (laughs) Uh, Small block engines were cheap, fast, and available. And the technology to make them really go was available because we knew these guys that worked at Chevrolet, and they they would tell you the latest, you know, what's the best carburation to have, how to set it up, what kind of timing you should run, et cetera. That was all common knowledge in our area. Right. So it was an easy thing, I guess. One of the guys I hung around with said, let's put a small block in the MG. And when I look at one today, it kind of scares me. So we did that. And so in 1959, I ended up driving a car on the street that weighed the same as the Corvette SS and had the same power. And I drove it around. I drove it for for about three years, and then I just got tired of working on it. Wow. I had put a beautiful engine in it that was hand-built, took the engine out, sold the MG without the engine, and uh, put that engine into a Corvette that I bought, a 56 Corvette, beautiful car, silver blue, and um, it was uh, really a nice car. So that, it was the right thing to do. I'd gotten tired of the rain coming in. Yeah. Besides, besides <laughs> and the electrics and all that kind of stuff. Plus, it was still, you know, I learned a lot about how to make a car go and ride and handle and all the rest. That was a great learning experience. My goodness, a small block V8 and an MGTD. Holy cow. I see the picture. 
Yes, you did. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Very, very cool. Well, how about a car that you've owned that you let go? Is there that old seller's remorse story somewhere in your life? Well, uh, I got married and uh, I had the Corvette and uh, was working at GM Design. And I was working with a guy that knew somebody else who had a Jaguar XKE that had been uh, in an accident and was being fixed. So it was a 61, it was a 3.8. That was in about 63. So I ended up getting that car and took my entire vacation to paint it and whatever and had it for four and a half years. And it was just a wonderful car. It would go 150 anytime you want. Wow. It was, you know, it was really fast. We still had some unlimited speed areas in Michigan, I think, at that time. But it was a beautiful car. I painted it a silver blue. It had a, a light gray interior. You know, it was so light and thin looking, uh, like a shell, like an eggshell. And uh, the engine was beautiful. It ran nice. And an XKE in the early 60s was really a, a crowd, you know, gatherer. Right. Where he went. Um, it was a lot of fun. And uh, we enjoyed it. We had put our two kids behind the seats. There was a little, there was a little uh, storage area there with a door that flips up, so luggage that's in the back it was a coupe can't come forward. And my wife found a little uh, blanket or something that she folded and fit in there, so our two kids would ride back there. <laughs> my sister and I used to ride on that little platform behind my mom and dad in his MGTC. That little. Uh, yeah. area up there. You think back now they would have been arrested for child endangerment, but... Uh, yeah, right, you go to prison. <laughs> now, now, before you ask you this next question, when we talk about the Jaguar XKE, my the car that started it for me was the XKE. We had a neighbor with one, and I just thought it was heavenly. As a designer, maybe real briefly, what's your thoughts on the design of that car? Well, you know, I had one for four and a half years, so I had a good chance to, to examine it, and... Um, it was beautifully done, and aerodynamically, it wasn't as good as people thought um, because of the back end. The front end was great. The intake, air intake is a classic, uh, what they call an aero-testing nozzle, where the air, as it hits that radius, accelerates, so and it draws more air into the opening. The bar in the center... Uh, of the grill is something that stabilizes air as it goes into a, a large opening. Uh, aerodynamically, uh, it was really good, but it was, it was a beautiful car. It was always shocking to me when driving it. You'd be driving in this car, and it was really comfortable. It rode really well. It had dual, you know, four shocks in the rear. It rode well. And you'd see it in, you'd see yourself in a uh, shop window or something. It's kind of a shock. You're riding in this smooth car that's easy and nice riding and all of a sudden you see this dramatic shape that you're in but it's no doubt a beautiful car some people uh, feel it's the most beautiful car ever created and so ferrari said that looking back in time it 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 certainly uh the things that are making it out of date are the probably now the understanding of aerodynamics that that were not known at that time right yeah but it is a great-looking car, and, you know, it was very much like a race car. The seats, the early cars had these thin-shell racing seats. You had the gauges that you could take two screws out and drop the panel down so you could get behind the gauges. Just a terrific automobile experience. 
Yes, something I I always wish I could have one. They've become so expensive now. There's just uh, ridiculous, but uh, such such beautiful cars. Well, I would love for you to tell our uh, listeners a little bit about this book that you wrote, Bella Mangusta. Now, the the De Tomasa Mangusta is another car that I just love. When that car came out, I was a kid. I looked at that thing and went, oh, my gosh, it's just so cool. You've got a very unique one, but tell us a little bit about this project. What inspired you to, to pen this book? About five years ago, I realized that I'd owned the car already over 40 years. And so as a designer, I've been looking at it for 40 years and understanding how it got to be the way it is and um, what was done and how special was the design effort by Jajaro. I started writing about it. There was a Pantera magazine that wanted me to do an article about it, so I did. And uh, so I had, that was kind of the foundation. And then I started writing more and more and more, and I realized that I had a special opportunity in that I had a car for a long time. I knew it very well, and by that I'm talking about the shape and the, the design. And uh, I also was a designer, so I could understand it more than than most people who didn't understand design or have a background in it. And uh, I also had been studying for a long time, working in uh, being able to communicate design. So the three things kind of came together. So I started writing, and I, I wrote a complete article, collected everything I had, put it together, sent that around to several magazines, including Octane in, in England. And everyone would, and this was all by email, everyone would write back, oh, we love it, it's great, but it just doesn't fit our profile. And that's when I became uh, educated to the fact that magazines have certain profiles for articles based on their clientele. So I did contact Automobile Quarterly magazine that was just a terrific magazine, and they were going to print it. They came out with a photographer. We went over to the Edsel and Eleanor Ford house took pictures. I didn't really like the way the photographer set the car up for his pictures. And so after they left, I drove it around to this road that runs along the water where these big willow trees had been blown down years ago. And I just parked it and I took a bunch of pictures. I thought, well, since I'm here, I'm going to take a bunch of pictures, not ever thinking I'd ever use them. So after Automotive Quarterly was going to print it, it was going to be in uh, what turned out to be the last issue, and then that got canceled. So it never got printed. Mm. And uh, in the meantime, they kept my $120 for a two-year subscription. <laughs> of course, they kept mine too. <laughs> <laughs> so then I started thinking, well, who can I send it to? So then I started to send it around. And none of that worked. So finally I sent it to a fellow that I knew from years ago who I'd see every once in a while at auto shows, Carl Ludvigson. And, you know, Carl has written... Ferrari books, Porsche books, uh, ma- ma- hundreds of magazine articles. And uh, he was the PR director for Bill Mitchell when I first started there. Mm-hmm. And then at, when I was working in Europe, I'd see him at auto shows once in a while. And we would talk. And when you're in European environment and you see another American, there's kind of a, you know, you tend to talk. So anyway, I sent it to him and I said, Carl, what do you think I should do with this? And he said, send it to Pete Vack, who has this website, Veloci Today. So I sent it to him, and we started communicating, and he wanted to put it on the on his internet program, but uh, he wanted to edit it quite a bit, 
And essentially, I, what I would see happening was all the design information that I put in would go out. And he wanted to turn it more to a historic article. So uh, then he was going to put it in, put it in. I was thinking about all that. And then uh, he never put it in. And then finally, I decided, well, maybe I can do something else. I started looking into this self-publishing book then. Mm-hmm. I made the deal with Ex Libris Publishing. And uh, a week later, uh, Pete called. And he said, well, I want to put the article <laughs> on the website. And I said, uh, he, well, he, he didn't call. He sent me an email. So I emailed him back, don't do anything until we talk. So finally I got to him. We ended up talking an hour and a half. Just a, just a terrific guy. And I told him what had happened. And he said, well, that's okay. No problem. He said, I will still put on what you want me to put on. We'll break it into three, uh, three episodes with pictures. And it can be like an advance promotion for the book. He said, and then I want to sell the book. I said, that's great. So that's what we did. Very nice. Uh, the book came along. I started working on the book and uh, designed the book uh, the way I wanted it. It came out just beautiful. And uh, people are, are buying it. And I'm struggling now with working on how to get set up for PayPal and all that so I can sell it myself. There you go. Great story. Yeah, Pete uh, was a guest, uh, early guest here on Cars. Yeah, great guy. So uh, it's very good that you two connected. Great story. I love it. I wish you the best success with that. And of course, we'll put a link on your Cars. Yeah, show notes page for our listeners so they can learn how to get their hands on a copy of Bella Mangusta. Fantastic. I just think it's a beautiful car. Well, here's a very introspective question for you, Dick. And I'll be very curious how you answer this being a designer. If Dick Rosen was a car, what kind of car would he be and why? You know, <laughs> what I'd like to be would be a Cadillac that has design influences from the 30s into 2030. And it would remind you of a modern Auto Union Grand Prix car with exposed wheels, a little top that would flip down, polished aluminum, maybe a Cadillac electronic power plant and V8, you know, know, a hybrid set up somehow, four-wheel drive, probably weigh around 2,500 pounds, maybe 3,000 pounds. Biggest tires you could find. Anyway, I think something like that would be neat. Now, there is a unique answer, for sure. Probably one of the most unique answers I've heard to that question. So, ah, you passed that test with uh, shining stars there, Dick. Great job, great job. Well, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Everyone who knows me knows I'm really picky when it comes to my cars and keeping them looking new. I'm a huge fan of Covercraft floor mats. I've protected my vehicle with their products for decades. Want to keep your vehicle's interior looking new? It's easy with Covercraft floor mats. They will protect your vehicle's factory carpets from daily abuse, weather, pets, children, weekend adventures, and those everyday spills. It's a fast, easy, and stylish way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft floor mats come in a wide variety of styles, materials, and configurations, all designed for maximum protection. In addition to Premier Plush and Berber Custom Floor Mats, you'll also find cargo liners, canine cargo area liners, dash covers, and sunscreens. Enhance your vehicle's looks while protecting the factory finishes with easy-to-install and easy-to-clean floor mats. 
Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Market Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Okay, Dick, we're back and we're entering the last lap. And this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick, short blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Don't take credit for anything. (laughs) I like that. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your success over the years? Uh, I think you have to be a a self-starter. I, I, when I lived, when I was young, I lived in the country and there was really no one to do anything with. So if something was going to happen, I had to do it. And I got used to doing that. And, uh, I think making things happen on your own is, is what you have to do, whether as an individual or as a team. Nice. Yeah. Now, do you have a resource that you think our listeners would really enjoy? Well, you know, nothing beats the Internet. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I use it for all kinds of things. It's the first thing I think of when I have uh, information. It's just incredible. It is incredible. Now, how about a book? Is there a book that you've read, other than your book, of course, that you think our listeners would enjoy? I like James Joyce. James Joyce has a lot of short stories. He is a writer that somehow is able to really communicate with a few words. Well, listeners, you can find all these great resources Dick has been so kind to share on his very own show notes page at carsyad.com slash Dick Ruzzin. And his last name is spelled R-U-Z-Z-I-N. And there's another great place on the Cars Yad website called Guest Recommended Books where this book and Dick's book and all the past 640 guest books are listed for quick, easy clicks to buy. All right, Dick, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question could be a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage but don't worry about the price because today i'll buy you anything in the world what would that vehicle be and more importantly why would you choose it boy that's uh <laughs> a tough one that's a toughie there there's so many cars i like that's the problem uh you and the past 640 guests <laughs> yeah i you know i am really happy with the two cars that i have well, if you had to keep one of those two and the other one you had to get rid of, which one would you keep? I would keep the Mongoose, even though I had a lot to do with the design of the Bitter CD. Okay. Okay. The Mon- Yeah. Well, I kind of thought that you would uh, you'd select that card. You know, the great thing about that answer for, for actually a pretty good number of my guests have said I already have my dream car. It makes me smile because uh, most of us are always seeking what we don't have. And for those of us who are happy with what we have and really enjoy it. Uh, that's the best of all worlds. So I'm so happy that you have that car. I hope I get to visit you someday and you'll give me a ride in it because I've never been able to take a ride in a Mongusta, but uh, I'm really happy that you have one. What color is yours? It's red with a red interior. Red with a red. Very nice. Very cool. Well, Dick, 
You have taken us on an awesome ride today through history. What a wonderful story and legacy you leave behind of of the, the early design days there at GM and, and all the fantastic cars that you worked on. I've really enjoyed learning more about you. And I want to thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars Show listeners. Could you offer us one parting piece of guidance before you head off down the road in that De Tomaso Mangusta? Do things that make yourself happy. Pretty simple. There's some words of wisdom from a man who's been around the block many, many times. And what's is there a way for our listeners to learn more about you, or what's the best way for them to get their hands on a copy of this great book? Well, the book, I had, there's a website, and it's bellamongoosedesign.com, but it's a, it's a, a really nice website, and uh, anyone interested in design would enjoy seeing it. Very nice. Well, again, listeners, you can find that website. I will have a link of it on Dick's show notes page at carsyad.com. Just type Dick in the search bar. His page will pop up. Get your hands on this book. I think you're going to love having it be in addition to your uh, automotive library. It's a fantastic effort. Love what you've done with that. Dick, I want to thank you for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and, and for sharing your life's experiences with our listeners. It's been a real joy. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It, it's, it's been a pleasure, and uh, uh, I'm really happy that I could do this for us. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!